All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another Bell Curve Roundup. Today, you've got me and Vance, which I think most people would agree was strongest two of the show. Anyway, uh, Yeah, exactly. I'm not getting dragged down by those other two that always yeah. uh, are just freeloading, just uh, riding on our coattails. <laughs> feels nice to have two big squares on the screen versus four. <laughs> exactly. Real estate to work this with. is so nice. Maybe we should reevaluate, honestly, this yeah, whole, the whole rest of the dynamic here. Um, so, uh, all right, let's get into it today. Actually, I love where we, we want to start here, uh, talking about credit. Um, so I'm going to actually just turn it over to you. People who are following along on video uh, can get this helpful visual here, just looking at Genesis Active Loans uh, quarter over quarter. But um, can you just like kind of tee it up? Like, why do you want to start this conversation talking about credit and what are we looking at here? Yeah, so I think a lot of the stuff that I've been doing is taking stock of 2021, 2020, uh, seeing where you know things made sense in retrospect, seeing where you know there was a lot of credit created, seeing where firms like Three Arrows you know you know took that credit and used it, and I think it helps you understand you know both the past obviously, but but also more likely the future and and where things are going to go because some of these things will will be in the market cycle next time, a lot of them won't, and it'll just have a different type of impact on uh, the market as as we know it. And so I think there's kind of three steps to this. The first is how much credit was there in the aggregate? Um, the second is who did it go to? Uh, and then the third is, um, you know, what was it used for? And, you know, we don't have all of the answers on, on this stuff. Uh, a lot of it is unknowable. These are private companies. But you can kind of start to piece together a little bit of like who, like it, what went to who and what was it used for? And, you know, just starting the discussion. Um, this is free form, but this is a good place to start. So on the screen right now, you have Genesis active loans by quarter and, uh, Q4 2021, they had about 12 and a half billion outstanding. Um, and that was, uh, not the high water market actually went a little bit higher to about 14 billion in Q1 of 2022. And so let, let's start with, uh, you know, this call it $14 billion number of credit. Um, and if you look at this chart, uh, which is a super fascinating research piece put out by uh, Adessa, uh, Adessa Cap on Twitter, I have no idea who they are, but this is good research. It's interesting. You know, there's 14 billion of credit. Um, more than half of that looked like it was USD, um, but about half of it was Bitcoin and ETH. And so, like, let's start with that 14 billion number. Um, there was a report that the Wall Street Journal released this month. That said that at the height uh, of, of, you know, the amount of credit that was created, six and a half billion of the Genesis active loans were, were to Alameda. And we'll get back to like who was using this, but let's start with this $14 billion number. $14 billion from Celsius. Uh, BlockFi's Q2 2022 transparency report, they had 1.3 billion in loans. You know, roughly double that so that we are, you know, at the peak of the credit creation in 2021 to take us back there. So, so call it like two, two and a half plus 14. So we're at 17 and a half of total credit created. Um, Voyager in their bankruptcy filing, 200 million to Alameda, 700 million to three arrows and a hundred million to 200 million to others. So we're, that's another billion. So we're now at 18 and a half billion. Um, Let's call the Babel Finance, Holdelnot, Blockchain.com bucket, you know, one. Let's say that was another billion. So we have 19 and a half billion of credit. Um, and then you have the FTX situation where they were selling user assets to pump their own coins. Call that credit as well. And I think that's around, you know, three to four billion. The, the point of this is that you get to, you know, 20 to 22 billion of aggregate credit that was created in the market during 2020 and 2021. The credit market is completely dead today. You literally cannot borrow dollars from anyone except for maybe Maple, um, but they're still kind of rebuilding and, and doing their thing. But that's a lot of credit. And so just like, let, let's stop there, Mike, any, any questions or anything like that? Yeah, well, you know, honestly, one of the things that I don't know if you're 
kind of planning on getting into this, but like one of the things that also stands out to me at looking at this chart here is this enormous green area, which is USD, like dollar-based lending. And it seems like, you know, based on what I know purely about the the Genesis situation, it seems like that's actually where they got into an enormous amount of their trouble uh, sort of as well. There was, there was a really great thread that sort of came out about this, which was, you know, if you look at, you know, US dollar credit creation, how it works in the rest of the world, it's like that happens at the level of, you know, commercial banks and commercial banks have like all these advantages, right? First of all, they have enormous balance sheets. They have, uh, you know, the look, that window with the Fed, right? There's like FDIC insurance. But on top of that, like even their prime brokerage desks and stuff like that, there are all these like tools and systems and processes and communication channels that have been built up over the years. And honestly, just watch it. There's a, I'll see if I can find the, the tweet thread and, and link it, which gets into more detail. But just watching, you know, when you look at this big green part of the chart and you saw Genesis trying to enter into this business, the my thought is just it was like, wow, they're really taking a knife to a gunfight. And they were just pretty ill-equipped at trying to participate in the business. That the, Like this is obviously where a lot of their revenue is being generated. So that's a huge takeaway for me looking at this. And and like this, the growth of the chart is crazy too, right? Crazy. You, know, you can see how this went from something that was manageable, a small cottage industry of you know micro loans, to you know one book alone, fourteen billion and fifteen billion in credit from just Genesis. I mean that yeah. that's pretty wild. Yeah. So where did this get end up getting used? Like, how much can we piece together about like? Because I I sort of have my own little um, theory about this, but like where. Where have you been able to piece together? Like, where was all this credit kind of going? So I, I do think, and just to back up, I do think there's an intermediate question here, which is um, what was being lent out as credit? You know, about half of it was US dollars, but the other half was Bitcoin and ETH. And if you're a market maker and you get Bitcoin and ETH, the first thing you do is sell it, put on a hedge if you have to get it back. But you need US dollars to do your work. You can you can do kind of crypto collateral on different types of, of levels, but that's pretty hard for market makers. So that's one other thing to, to keep in mind. So the numbers to remember, 20 to probably 22 or 25 billion of credit were, was created in 2021 through all of the venues. Um, and where did it go? Alameda. So let, let's just put that one out there. There was a Wall Street Journal report that said there were six and a half billion loan, six and a half billion of outstanding loans that were given to Alameda just from Genesis at a single point in time. And so that's greater than 50% of their loan book at any given point. And so you can kind of imagine Genesis giving them a few billion of USD, a couple billion of Bitcoin, a couple billion of ETH. They sell the Bitcoin and ETH. They go off and market make, do whatever they need to do. And that loan was, was eventually called. So, you know, Alameda has six and a half billion from Genesis. They have at least another 200 million from Alameda. Um, and they probably have, you know, another billion or two billion or so just from other sources and uses. Um, most specifically, the FTX collateral that was stolen and, and, and probably sold and then used to buy the other assets. So I'm calling it at least 10 billion of credit was given to Alameda. And you think about that, that's a big number. And where did it go? You know, probably a, a few different places. And, and we'll get into that. I have, I have an answer there. So. Alameda, there's 20 billion, 25 billion total credit. Alameda gets about half. Three arrows. Let's talk about that one. Hmm. Um, the week that they got called, uh, the data that was put out, and, and they got margin called and they got blown up uh, because they couldn't meet their, their credit obligations. They had 3 billion in loans from Genesis. They had 700 million from Voyager, 700 million from BlockFi, and probably another few hundred million from blockchain.com. They probably had 5 billion in credit. And so if you think back during 2021, you had Alameda with 10 billion, you had Three Arrows as like a slightly smaller, more scrappier competitor, but they had, they had probably 5 billion. Between those two, you're talking about 66 to 75% of the entire credit market was just from them. And, and you look at Genesis's uh, statements that they put out, Alameda was their biggest counterparty, it was about 33% of their loan book, Three Arrows was probably 20%, but you know, the, the figures match. You know, you're talking about roughly 15 billion of credit between those two. And so the question that you know I get to is like, where did the other credit go for, go to? Yeah. There's 20, 25 billion, 15 billion is three hours in Alameda. Directional hedge funds, probably pretty small. Mining, you know, that's probably another one. And then maybe the GBTC trade, you know, that would be the third place. But you know, really, you're talking about the entire market encapsulated, you know, 75% between two people, and that that's just wild to look back on. A hundred percent. And it, you know. 
the uh, it's it's funny because like three arrows has now blown up. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago that those guys blew up, but there are these like commonalities in between. First of all, just to like reiterate what we've talked about on the show a million times, their Kyle's and Sue's explanation for how it's not their fault still just gets to me at my core. They're like, no one could, they, you know, their big thing was, oh, well, we didn't know that people would follow us into this trade despite publishing, you know, that they had like $1.5 billion of outstanding GBTC in, you know, going to a trade. So uh, there was that. But a lot of these guys ended up getting taken down by a pretty similar mistake. And honestly, even though, so a huge part of the market was like these two entities that you're pointing out, but honestly, Three Arrows Capital, DCG and Barry, Alameda all kind of did the same thing. They took, they had a horrendous duration mismatch, uh, whereas they had a source of financing that was supposed to be geared towards like longer term, less volatile risk taking. And they used that to lever up and go super long shitcoins, which is good when shitcoins are going up. But then when the market turns and now like DCG, this is, I'm sure this is what's being talked about behind closed doors at DCG. It's like, how do you get liquidity on that? Um, and that's like what happened with Three Arrows. It's what happened with, I mean, Alameda was kind of a whole different thing, but kind of honestly, same thing with Alameda. And then uh, DCG is, I think, facing that same same exact problem. Right. And and they had kind of the same symptoms and ultimate, ultimate uh, diagnosis of, of just being dead. But how they got there was was two different ways. Like if you look at how they got the leverage, uh, Alameda printed the FTT token. They used, to, and this is all public information. They used it to collateralize the loans. And you know, if you think about that relationship, where FTT is really the whole thing that's probably at the empire, Barry says, "I want the loan back." You can't really say anything else. You know, what, what's the alternative? They just sell FTT into the market and collapse everything. And so it was not surprising in retrospect to see that that loan actually got paid off in the summer. Whereas they probably just extended the duration on everything else. Um, and then if you think about Three Arrows, how they probably got the leverage was different, right? It was the GBTC trade, which is kind of the self-encapsulated trade within um, Genesis where, you know, Three Arrows comes up, they, they buy GBTC, they pledge as collateral, they get more loans, they buy more GBTC, they pledge as collateral, and so on and so forth. And in that scenario, it's kind of the opposite where Barry now has the token that is underpinning his empire, GPTC. And if that really gets panic sold, you know, there's a different scenario. And so a lot of the Three Arrows claims are, you know, Barry just liquidated us to steal our, our GPTC. And, you know, who knows if that's right or wrong, but you can kind of generally assume that Barry really wanted to protect that GPTC from, from being sold on the open market, because uh, that would really hurt, you know, a lot of his business. So it, it's kind of different paths, but it's just interesting to think about the power dynamics of the relationships between, you know, the lenders and the borrowers and, and how they each got there. 100%. Although I do think, to be fair to Barry, there's much more like GBTC is more legitimate as, a, as an asset than FTT, yeah, which was... Yeah, you, more nothing. to hang on there. You also yeah. created it, so like there's some rules around what you can do with it, but um, it, it's just interesting nonetheless. And so the, la the last part of kind of like this analysis that I wanted to, to do, mostly for myself, just understand what happened is how did these people use the collateral? So th these are just like round numbers that I'm guessing at, but there's 20, 25 billion of credit that no longer exists in the crypto ecosystem that used to. Um, Alameda's VC portfolio, that's 5 billion, you know, right there. You know, that, that's what they use that for. Um, they probably use another two to 3 billion on, on FTX and FTX exchange operations, marketing, personal loans, things like that. Those, those figures roughly match uh, there was likely about two billion uh, spent supporting Sam coins, in my opinion, two to three billion. You know that that's a lot of money, especially if you're levering perps up with it and you're really charging against people in a no liquidation context. And so that's another one, and, and that's kind of like the Alameda bucket, and, and that adds up to ten billion. But um, it just it reminds me of like this old saying, you know, like, how did you lose all your money? It's like, well, I spent the first third on like booze, you know, women and, and fast horses and the rest I just squandered. Like they did squander a good portion of it just on these stupid marketing things and, and all like that. But the rest of it was used in ill-advised VC bets, trying to prop up ecosystem coins. The thing I want to drive home on how Alameda used the funds is that that was very self-contained within the Solana and the Solana ecosystem and, and the FTX ecosystem. Like you didn't really see... Alameda going long ETH or Bitcoin or, 
GBTC, like they were spending money to make money within their own ecosystem. So what? So is the long-term implication for that then basically it, mechanically then in the market, there was basically a lot of sell pressure, sort of artificial sell pressure coming from uh, the Solana FTX part of the ecosystem on kind of the core assets of Bitcoin and ETH sort of artificially propping and a lot of artificial buy pressure on kind of the Samcoin ecosystem. Is that the the takeaway and you would expect that to kind of reverse moving into this new regime or what's your sort of takeaway from the analysis? I, I would say that, you know, the two to four billion spent on Sam coins is probably something that you don't really see again. Um, I also think the five billion that they spent on just like VC style bets and you know, propping up ecosystem token or like doing all the venture rounds for all the ecosystem tokens, like you probably don't see that ever again. Um, like the, the VC presence of setting the floor on Solana projects was a phenomenon that, you know, just blew my mind where everything that was raising private money on Solana was like two or three X more expensive than ETH. Um, and you probably don't see that again, but I think the takeaway is, you know, it's, it's, there's going to be just less of a bid on, on Sam coins and, and like, you know, that playbook of having this massive ecosystem fund really won't, work again just the credit won't be, be there so that that is um what ftx did and, and like you know they were big solana backers uh, but that was really you know their game you look at three arrows it's it's mostly the same story but it's a little bit different they were uh you know sue still has the red triangle uh so he's he's along avax you know he did all those deals with luna i think it was like a billion plus of, of deals with luna um and so if you think they have five billion you know maybe that's like one and a half, two billion of, of money that they spent there. Um, you know, they did near, they did Mina, uh, they did the GBTC trade. The things they didn't do were the majors, honestly. Like they didn't put net buy pressure onto Bitcoin or ETH. Like it was all used within these relatively self-contained ecosystems. And so, you know, I think the, the long and the short of it is Ethereum really didn't get much, much, much or many of these flows. And I think that will be different next time going forward. Um, but mostly, you know, and, and not to harp on this over and over, you can kind of tie the source of funds to how they were used. And I can just see these all L1 ecosystems really taking a hit as a result. Like you're going to need um, large ecosystem funds to support them. And I just don't know if they're there anymore. Yeah. I want to actually get back to the point of ecosystem funds. There was an ecosystem fund that was announced this week. I'm not sure if you saw it. Yep. And I think it's actually very confusing how these things are phrased because it's not like $160 million was raised for this ecosystem fund. So I, actually, it would be great if you could explain like mechanically how this stuff works. But I have a question before we get there, which is how would you contend? Because like the big story this week, right, is like, and I know uh, the bank, I know you were on the Bankless pod this week and they were asking you about this, but is like this Aptos sort of run here. So if we're, if we're looking at this in terms of like, okay, there was a big, there's sort of this artificial buy pressure that's propping up and injecting capital that into these sort of contained L1 ecosystems and, and ETH and Bitcoin flows were suffering as a result. Like that dynamic should, so what you might expect to see in the reverse dynamic is like Bitcoin and ETH outperforming, but actually the things that have performed the best, right, are some of these like alt what like Aptos is like running away and now has a valuation that's tied with Zoom. So like, how does that square basically with this i mean you can generally say that like it doesn't make sense it's worth mm. you know double coinbase at this point i think um Is it which really would, yeah it, you know doesn't make a ton of sense when you think about it in the right context but you know the long term of how a bull cycle manifests over several years versus the short term of how a token launches get shorted by the wrong people and then you know people long it and run over them forcing them to buy back you know, those are, those are two different things. Um, and so my idea of how this Aptos run has come about is like mostly people are offside shorting it. People are longing into it, trying to you know, take out their stops and force them to buy back higher. And it makes sense within the context of if you are a fund that did the Aptos early rounds and you're now sitting on, you know, a billion of unrealized paper gains, like you're going to try to short the perp. The only question is, do you have enough collateral to withstand people longing against you? And I think the answer that we just learned is probably not. Mm. I'm with um, you. but you know things are things are expensive optimism is worth coinbase it's in and that's in our portfolio so you know glass houses don't throw stones i ultimately think in the fullness of time you're gonna see the flows dictate the price and i don't think we're at a point where you can make that conclusion yet i want to move on to just actually as like a because it was it was 
this was a subject of debate internally at BlockWorks this week, actually, and this news came out. But uh, there was a $160 million ecosystem fund um, uh, that's in the injective ecosystem, or $150 million. Uh, so Pantera jumped crypto back, $150 million uh, injective ecosystem fund. Um, and the mechan- there, there, were, there was a period of time, actually, you know, to your, to your point before, where there was it's like every week there was a new $150 million, $300 million like ecosystem fund for these different L1 sort of ecosystems. And this wasn't, it was there, it's worded a little bit confusingly because it's not like there's money. It's not like Jump and Pantera just like deployed a fresh $25 million check into this fund that Injective is going to use. So each, each ecosystem fund is frankly a little bit different in the structure and they're kind of opaque. But can you talk a little bit about like, ecosystem funds like when you hear that word what do you think about these things like how do they typically work actually so the fine print on most ecosystem funds is that to your point it's not us dollars sitting in a bank account uh, or at least i wouldn't assume that the vast majority of ones that i've seen are more than half the native token of the ecosystem plus you know some money from from outside investors and some sort of handshake agreement that you know they're going to get the first look at any project that comes out of it um and you know it can be used for uh, you know venture funding. It can be used for liquidity mining in the case of AVAX. But I think the common thread is that uh, they're mostly tokens. You know, this isn't like real US. I remember when Avalanche had like the billion dollar, uh, yeah, yeah. I forget what it was called, fund, like Blizzard or something. They had the cool like yeah. snowboarder graphic. Actually, um, it was a pretty dope graphic. I don't it was a cool that. graphic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But you know, I haven't seen these things work very well over the long term. There's something about like the nepotistic, like we are the chain, we are also the fund, we are going to incubate the projects where like if it's too self-encapsulated, nothing ever really breaks out into the mainstream. It just becomes this echo chamber. So we'll see how it how it does. But I think generally I'm just, you know, happy that we're putting points on the board with new funds, new capital, <laughs> new ways for entrepreneurs to do what they're doing. What's up, Yano? What's happening? Yeah, no, thank you for gracing us with your presence. Yeah, really nice. Oh, you know, I wasn't going to join until I saw that Vance got a new headshot and he's looking pretty dapper in it. So I uh, figured, I'd, figured oh, wow. I'd join you guys. My, <laughs> my comms guy he sent that to you. We, we've been going back and forth on whether I look pretty sharp. Pretty cool sharp. You, you and Michael have like similar look. I know those were taken on the same day, same photographer. <laughs> I've been there, man. I've been there. It's okay. We did that too. <laughs> the, the first headshots that Michael and I ever did, we went to this, uh, this place in Oakland, this fake brick office. Uh, I remember that. It was in yeah, the Forbes yeah, article yeah. about you guys. Yeah, I remember. And the guy was like, you two are like so awkward that like, do you want like a drink or do you want me to like start playing music? And it was, it was like an absolute gong show of a two hour session. Like at one point I, I was standing on a table really so well. I could be the same height as Michael and he did not like that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's how do you like that? But we were just talking about ecosystem funds and, and all that good stuff. Oh, Mike loves mm-hmm. ecosystem funds. We, I was telling, I don't, you know, it was a subject of intense internal debate at BlockWorks about, uh, we decided not to cover this, this particular uh, fund for, it's just, they're, they're a little bit, uh, they can be misleading sometimes in the way that they're, that they're announced, honestly. Um, or portrayed. You want to ask the specific questions of like, what's it comprised of? And they were unwilling to answer that, that specific question. So we ended up not covering What does that mean, Vance? What would it be comprised? What are you looking for there? Like mostly tokens, you know, like $150 million fund based on the private valuation of, uh, you know, X protocol marked at its highest and last round. Oh, so you could have a $200 million Aptos ecosystem fund based on Aptos at 15 bucks right now. And that, and it's all Aptos token. I I see what you're saying. Right. The key is to announce your ecosystem fund when your market cap is the largest. So people think you're, you're big and scary. Right. And then the other question is, where are those specific tokens coming from and oftentimes like the investors that are participating in the ecosystem fund is like hey there were all these investors and they were going to have their unlocks uh at one period of time so sometimes those unlocks instead of just unlocking into the wild are put into the ecosystem fund uh as well which is another little way sometimes those things end up happening um, some fancy footwork yeah yeah so you know good for them for for going there even if it's all tokens I, you're willing, I you're willing to put something up and fund people. You're cool with me. I agree with that. I agree. Um, let's talk a little bit about. I don't know if you guys saw. Just speaking of, uh, um, 
unlocks. Uh, DYDX actually had a pretty interesting move. So they announced that they were doing the opposite of an unlock. Actually, they ha- they had a big unlock that was scheduled uh, for January, and they pushed it back. It was $282 million worth of token unlocks that they pushed into the future. Uh, and that's going to be so that it's going to start uh, in December, 20- December 1st, 2023 now. So basically at the end of the year. And then there's an unlock schedule, which basically like 30% of the unlocks happen on December 1st, 2023, then 40% in equal monthly installments, first day of each month, January to June, then another 20% from June till the end of the year, and then 10% uh, you know, from July 1st, uh, 2025 to June 1st, 2026. So basically they kick these unlocks um, you know, way down into the future. And uh, the, the, I mean, DYDX, kind of exploded higher. I mean, it was up like 20% uh, on the first day that this was announced and it's since been doing doing pretty well. I, I can, t- like, without, you know, trying to put words, like our analysts are uh, on our research team are pretty excited about DYDX overall. Um, like on-chain perps are a pretty interesting use case, especially right now, like there are just so f- few dApps that people are actually using. Uh, like you can always count on the, the 24-hour casino <laughs> to, to attract some amount of users. And you know, decentralized perps are a pretty good way to do it. Even if you just look at like cumulative volume of DYDX versus, which has been around for like five years, I think Antonio has been, been building that um, versus like GNS and GMX uh, or Gains Network and GMX. Uh, I think DYDX has done like $800 billion uh, cumulative in terms of volume and uh, combined uh, Gains and GMX have done just a fraction of that. Um, so I, I don't know if you guys saw this, this move to delay the unlocks or if you had any any thoughts on it i don't have thoughts about the delaying the unlock uh, maybe maybe vance does but i also like i get why people are so excited about dydx they did I, I i don't think it's about the unlock as much as it is about like they're one of the best like app tokens right now they have they did 350 million in revenue last year and they're about to turn on um revenue the revenue return is about to be implemented this year not guaranteed but from, right. from what i've from what i've heard um and they launched v4 coming soon so like I don't know. And, and they have some pretty big catalysts coming this year, like the, the returning the revenue, launching V4. Um, I think it's like an it's an easy buy for an institution who's looking at DeFi to be like, all right, they have revenue. They div, they're, they're going to do like dividends back. They've got a massive TAM, um, low float, only one unlock this year in what what, what I think it's going to be February now. So I, I see why people are so excited. I, I think you're going to see these teams slowly put things together. We're, we're turning on the revenue. We're launching the app chain. Okay, like crypto and, and speculation and DeFi are like the most endogenous use cases to, to crypto. Like we don't need anything else to happen for those things to be popular. And I think you're going to see teams pull it, put it together. And it starts with, you know, what is the token doing? And like DYDX's token has always been a sideshow, but they're going to put together the pieces to make it work. They're going to direct revenue to the token there's not a lot of these, but you know, the signs of, of them putting it together is really encouraging. And, you know, we, uh, yeah, we like it. Vance, I've got a question for you as a VC, you know, when you, when these protocols talk about returning revenue to token holders, what are your, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, don't until the last second, like most technology companies don't return any revenue, any dividends ever, let alone like in the first three years. And that's because you're trying to capture this massive market that you believe could generate substantially more revenue if you, you know, internalize it and use it wisely in the beginning. And that's what I want all of our protocols to do. Like, who cares about them giving people one, two, three percent in in the bear market? You know, they can go buy T bills if they want that. Um, I would just say, don't return money until you have like a massive scaled protocol that's fully decentralized and, frankly, because of securities regulations, a finished product. I'm not a, hu- a huge uh, bull on governance at all. I'm a bull on no governance and just like a finished product. And that's what I ultimately want to see from these teams. Something that is beyond the reach of, of you know, any sort of uh, reproach in terms of uh, securities, but also able to generate massive revenue and give it back to token holders at scale. I'm just simply not interested in a protocol that's worth a billion dollars. It's returning $10 million a year to a token holders. Just like not interesting. I'm 100% agree. with you on hard, that. Yeah. Hard agree. Yeah. Hard agree on that. It and just like doesn't make sense. The peanut gallery will always want the fees. Even when they're faced with, we will shut the product down if we can't get revenue into the treasury. Like they'd rather have 100% of zero. I'd rather have a much smaller percent of something much larger. Next story I kind of wanted to get your take on was uh, 
I know, Yano, you were talking about this a little bit earlier today, but this is uh, Circles announcement. So Circles, um, they're launching Circles cross-chain transfer protocol. So the background is they they released uh, this week developer documentation for CCTP, as it's being called over the, or it was this weekend, I guess. Uh, it aims to be a permissionless on-chain utility that can burn USDC on a source chain and then mint native USDC on a destination chain. Uh, Circle will serve as the ultimate source of truth, serving as the minter, burner, price oracle for USDC. They're not calling it a bridge. And I guess there is a difference between most bridges, which are um, like you lock and then mint, and this would be burn and mint. And the key difference here is that uh, Circle, it's only one asset. It's a one asset bridge where Circle happens to be the issuer of the native asset. Uh, so it's it's pretty interesting, you know. I mean, I think um, there's there's definitely a des- desire in these different ecosystems for there to be USDC natively, and I know it's been a pain in the ass for Circle to launch on like uh, Ethereum and then have to figure out if you want USDC on Solana or wh- wherever else or in Cosmos or wherever else. Uh, so it se- it seems like it is a pretty big deal, uh, but I'm curious to get your guys your guys thoughts. Yeah, bull- bull- I'd say bullish Circle, bullish DeFi brings liquidity, like h- helps assets move across DeFi much smoother bearish for other bridges um i think like no, i don't think anyone's gonna i don't know who uses a bridge when you can just burn usdc on chain a and then mint usdc on chain b uh, except if you're like a decentralization maxi or if circle is forced to kyc um is forced to kyc it so like i think it's a i think it's smart that they're calling it a utility right like bridges had like two billion of hacks last year so Obviously, people think about bridges now. They're really scared of them. Um, and like, but bridges, like the UX experience of bridges sucked. It was like you had like Axelar USDC and then you had like Wormhole USDC. It was like a total nightmare dealing with 10 stuff. different types of USDC on Solana and all that and stuff. Like just a nightmare. Awful. I don't know. I think, I think it's a great product. I, I like really tip my cap at Circle here. The like counter argument is that they are the, the, the minter, the issuer, the like source of truth. And like, that's kind of like anti-DeFi, I'd say, but I, th- I think it's a great product development. I think we're going to see people use bridges less in the future. I think what we're going to see, instead of like the plain vanilla transferring USDC from one chain to the next chain, okay, I'm now on this next chain. Now I'm going to go do this thing on this next chain. And then I'm going to go withdraw it to, you know, the original chain so I can go cash it out. I think what you're going to see is these interoperability protocols that are not just you know asset specific, but they're they're more about moving data and relaying transactions. Where you know you're on ETH, you need to bridge to Optimism, buy an NFT, and then like you know figure out how to sell it and bridge it back. You're going to be able to do that in in one two transactions, and I think this will be part of a larger you know interoperability stack that really makes like the concept of like switching from one chain to another just not make a lot of sense to users. That's where I roughly see this going. There's always this like, oh my God, this is the new thing. And like, you know, this is going to be the new way that we do it all the time forever and, and for all time. And But it's usually like, okay, this is like a stepping stone towards something that's a little bit more seamless from user experience. And I think that's ultimately where we're going. But we haven't seen the death of other bridges. I think we've seen like more of a rearrangement in terms of like what they're going to do and what they're going to be useful for. And like the plain vanilla bridges, like, you know, things like Hop, I think those are going to be challenged just because... You know, we've looked at 70, 80% of the monthly volume of, of transferred assets is either USDC or ETH, where there's a native you know, ETH bridge. That, that's what I think is kind of smart about this. Uh, it's just like, if you just look at, instead of trying to be a bridge that you can send, like, you know, if the scope of what you're trying to achieve there is like be able to transfer any asset across to any other, like from one L1 to another, it is very tactically complex. Whereas if like 70% of the volume is going through this one asset and you can just win that one asset, it kind of reminds me of the compound, the compound strategy of just like, just trying to, instead of being able to deposit like any type of collateral, people just want to get leverage on their, their dollars. Like people just want to borrow and lend in dollars. Like, so just get maximum capital efficiency, get the best rates for USDC. Tell you what, I, like we are scared shitless of, of using bridges um, and we will only use like, you know, ones that we've done our own audits on I'm glad to see something safer come to market because I think we probably lost a few billion dollars of customer assets in bridges last year, none of which we invested in. By we, I mean the proverbial we of the industry, but you know, not not a great look either way. So I don't know if you guys saw Antonio, the founder of DYDX responded, uh, you know, like very quickly to Jeremy Lair when he tweeted this out. Uh, But he said DYDX would be 
you know, they would use this basically instantly starting day one when they make their transfer from Starknet to, you know, their own their own protocol, their own chain in um, in the Cosmos ecosystem. And th- this was like there was a there was an announcement of a general asset issuance chain, which I think is called Noble now is the name. Um, and that's and Circle's going to leverage that basically to mint USDC, which then with IBC, you know, uh, through the Cosmos hub, you know, you can basically you can basically have uh, Cosmos native USDC. And that's kind of interesting because for Cosmos applications, there's no native token like there is an ETH, like you have to use ETH to uh, to mint or like to burn like gas fees and stuff. Um, and if you want in a in a Cosmos chain, you could actually use USDC right uh, to pay for things. Or if you're DYDX and you want to reward your user, they have like a whole bunch of trading rewards, right? That's a huge part of their uh, token allocation. You could actually pay your your users in USDC instead. So it's kind of uh, it'll it'll be interesting. Honestly, to see what ends up getting used there. When are we going to stop calling it the Cosmos ecosystem? I don't know. <laughs> the Canto ecosystem? Yeah. I've asked. I don't really know. I haven't looked into what Canto is at all. Our analysts literally bridged assets over into Canto before some of the devs at Canto bridged their assets over. They were literally, if you look, they were, they were, look at the chain, they were the first dollars in the <laughs> Canto. I was like, I was like, guys, because I remember the, over the summer them telling me about Canto, and uh, and uh, they're like, yeah, you definitely shouldn't do it. None of us are going to get our money back. You, there's once you bridge over, you can't, there's no there's no way to even get it out right now. I was like, honestly, that's how you make it. That's how you make it. I'm not willing to take those risks at this age. I mean, I like your analysts a lot. And there's always like three of them when, whenever I'm on a call with them. It's like they roll in packs. Exactly they, how that, I did it. We, back so Vance, we just had our offsite. We, we, <laughs> we just had our offsite in, in Savannah. And uh, and uh, they, 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 they moved together. Like they moved yeah, the herd. No, no, no. They roll together. You know, you might have like a tape where, you know, we're we're like, there are different presentations given at the company and like, you know, we go to a bar, we go to a restaurant, different teams sit together. You have like a salesperson sitting with a marketer, sitting with like, you know, like a developer or something. The analyst, you just look at a table. It's just like, (laughs) nobody wants to sit with that energy either. Because you know what they're talking about? They got roasted. What other bridges can we ape to get into weird (laughs) places? Like, I love it. There's no like at those at that table. There's no like, how was your weekend? Like, what do we what what, what game are we watching this weekend? It's like, <laughs> DGen only. Let, let me let me take you on a different path. So I, uh, you, you know who Andrew Tate is, right? We all know who Andrew Tate is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, really a different path here, huh? Yeah. I'm not sure how these are going to bridge together. But, so uh, so I, so I lo- so I looked at it's going to tie. I looked at uh, like Andrew has a, a thing called Hustlers Academy. Which is kind of like, you know, we'll train you to make lots of monies and get like a cool colored Bugatti. Mike's a member. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mike's, Mike's for sure a member. Mike's for sure a member. I was the first one. I was like, our analysts were into content. I was the first one for top me. 10. <laughs> yeah. So, so he's got like three careers that he'll train you in. You like enter the website, you enter the flow, and it's kind of like you have to pick like, pick like a guild or like what you train in. The first one is drop shipping. So, you know, like somebody orders a fancy soap, you order it from Alibaba and you send it to their house and like you don't have a front end. Like that's one career. The next one is, I think you can describe it as like multi-level marketing Ponzi schemes. Okay. And then the third one is like, we'll teach you how to trade crypto. Like those are the three Wait, but I heard, but I saw that he box. actually nailed a bunch of calls. Oh, he nailed a bunch of calls. I he heard called that he the bottom on a live t- stream. He called yeah, the top it. in October, 2021. Like yeah. <laughs> he was like, pretty, you know, but... I thought it was funny, you know, it still is, if you're trying to make it, Andrew Tate's telling you it's one of three options and the other two are drop shipping and Herbalife. It's, it's pretty compelling to, to your analysts, you know, who are aping these like obscure bridges into these obscure chains. I can see why. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if like that, his like the list of people that were a member to that ended up getting leaked? Can you imagine that? Like that would be brutal. And if you were like on that, you know. Like, let's put it like this. Would you rather have it leaked to the world that you are a subscriber to, like, 10 OnlyFans accounts or the Andrew Tate, <laughs> or, Andrew Tate. <laughs> or the Andrew Tate, like, self-help little club? Listen, I used to subscribe to Willy Woo Substack. Uh, that would probably be the most embarrassing of, of the three. <laughs> oh, man. I, I bet I've subscribed to some embarrassing stuff back in the day, back in my yeah. self-help college days. There, there's always that moment where you're, like, coming out of college, like, 23, 24 man, am I really going to work this corporate job for the rest of my life? When I was like 19, I read a lot of like um, 
Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki. Oh, yeah. Uh, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill, oh, I think it was. Yes. Um, How yes, to Win sir. Friends and Influence People. Like, those, you, know, yep. you know, those books. Like, that. Like 19-year-old me ripped those books. The, the worst self-help book is uh, The Game. I don't know if you have any friends that read oh. that. I, I never, okay. I, it was, it was this? in that group, but I never read it. If that's how you talk to women, if that's how you learn how to talk to women, like you're going to have some big problems later in life. Like you may turn into actual Andrew Tate at some point. Oh, is this the, is this the like pickup book? Is like yeah, the like, pickup artist type thing? And yeah, they're, they're just like, you know, they're like the, the concept is like, okay, like all women are the same. This is how you should approach them. You should like act like an alpha male and like kind of a dick. And like the people who've read that, it's like, you can't really bring them back. Yeah. It's you know yeah. Once you go, I, once you go full like the game, you, you never come back. You never come back. But I, I think you know, to, to the original point is like, the Hustler Academy is filled with guys that are trying to make it, and those are your three best options according to Andrew Tate. I was um I was listening. I was listening to a podcast. This is like a legacy podcast. I still tune into everyone. Else. It's hosted by these two people that like don't know crypto, but um. Actually, I'll just, I, I like this podcast a lot. It's Pivot. I don't mean to shit on either of these two. I like Kara and I like Scott Galloway. And I've been oh, listening to oh it. wow. Yeah, I've been listening to it for years. It's like uh, it's like my like guilty pleasure thing that I listen to. And uh, Scott was on the board of, uh, he's on the board of Ledger. <laughs> I actually, he, yeah. So he, and he was describing, he was like, yeah, so people are buying up our, you know, our, our wallets. And I keep urging the founder that the future of crypto isn't in these NFTs or anything like that. It's in you know, storing digital assets like healthcare records and supply chain material. And I was like, I cannot imagine Pascal listening to that on a board meeting. I want to ask. I was like, get this guy out. Thanks, Scott. We'll meeting. get yeah. right on that. Thanks, dude. A hundred percent, Scott. I'm with you on that. I, I'm Scott, big fan. Yeah, but I don't mean to be mean. It's like something I tweeted today. Like people are obsessed with like these like real world use cases where their mother will be able to use it and their grandmother will be keeping her health care records on that. It's just like, guys, we're like building a large crypto economy and you're focused on like putting these things on chain. Like what types of revenue are they going to generate? How are they going to be reflexive and have a flywheel? I don't know. I kind of think we're in this like purgatory where any use case we come up with will be declared as like not a real use case. But that's how people get sidelined. It's it's interesting trying to talk to someone who like, there are people that, like the majority, a lot of people came into crypto in the last 24 months or something, and all they knew was the bull market before this. And now this is the first iteration of these like real world use cases that they're seeing. And it's like very compelling to people who've been in crypto for like two years, you know, because it's like, oh, okay, like dog coins aren't really going to be a thing. And they're like more skeptical in their head. And they're like these real world use cases of like tokenization and real world assets, which there might be some merit to real world assets. I haven't really made up my mind, but like, it's basically just a rehashing of like blockchain, not Bitcoin and enterprise blockchain and like a lot of same that thing. stuff. Same thing. Every same single thing. Every single time. Yeah. And Coinbase and, and uh, Brian Armstrong have talked about this where I think after the 2014 or 2015 run, they were kind of down in the doldrums. Their exchange wasn't generating a lot of money. And one of their board members was saying, you guys need to pivot to be, and this company doesn't exist anymore, an R3 competitor, which built private blockchains for people who literally never use them. I remember yeah. R3. Remember, yeah, uh, remember uh, digital cool. assets with Blythe Did, Masters Blythe, as well? Blythe yeah, Masters. Yeah. Oh, we sure remember them well, yeah. Like, yeah. how are those things going? They did not survive. They did not find product market fit. They were staffed with the smartest people in finance. And, and the reality is, is, like, those are interesting enterprise SaaS businesses. But, like, that's not the movement. It's not the revolution. It's not, like, what we're trying to build. It's just not the big market. Yeah, I agree. Um, but the, the point that there were also like outside of that, uh, on, on pivot is like that. Th th and this is, I actually do kind of believe this as an idea. It's like the ultimate buyers of these things, like the reason why Bitcoin and Ethereum and like crypto is so compelling to a younger, like millennial or Gen Z type generation is because if you talk to like, especially Gen Z, um, there's this idea that like we, the system, like we're already fucked. If we, if we try to do the thing that our parents did or people that are older than us, like buy stocks, like you're not going to work, never going to make it. Um, so we need to do something else, something that's like higher risk, higher volatility, like higher convexity kind of. And like crypto is that, is that thing. And I actually do, I think I buy that argument because I also think like that a little bit. Like uh, there's a part of me where it's like, yeah, dude, I'm not going to like make money buying the stock market right now. like look at it it's ridiculous um 
I think I think it's different now too because of social media. Like, what do you see when you go on Instagram? Models and private jets and movie stars and rock stars and everyone was brought up with the idea of like you you too will will someday be one of these people. But there's a lot of daylight between the average person and, and getting to that level. And so it's like it's logical, you know. You you don't you didn't have that mirror of pop culture twenty thirty years ago that was instant on demand like. If you're living in New York, you probably didn't even know what was going on in on Los Angeles. Like now that culture, the movie star, you know, big life, that's everywhere. And I think that's what people are all aiming for just because of social media. So I think it's it's now like that more than ever. Yeah, I think so, too. Social media is a tricky thing. I mean, I know uh, I have a lot of conversations with my dad about this, who like ascribes a lot of the ill in society to social media and i've kind of defended it for a long time mr ippolito you, you oh, imagine the that damn social networks <laughs> yeah i'm just kidding i do love your dad and i think and i think, I he's think right. he, and i think he's i right, i increasingly i've right. defended him a lot and i increasingly think he might be right no i'm completely on his page too yeah you yeah. go on instagram now it's just trash like trash. you know like it's all like it looks like a chat gpt3 instance took over the internet and just it's just like all models and movie stars and like, you know, cool houses. And it's so you toxic. Watch, you guys should watch the social, uh, the social Dilemma on Netflix. Hmm. You will, if you're not already convinced that social media is horrible, you will delete Instagram from your phone immediately. But, I, I deleted it. I deleted Instagram, Instagram and Twitter. haven't had them for like a year. I haven't I, had that, Twitter and Instagram. On, I also all, haven't had Twitter and Instagram on my phone. And I don't have any social media on my phone, actually. If I need to tweet something, I need to go sit down on my computer, open the computer, take a breath. Me too. Type Me in my too. password, yeah. you know, yeah. tweet. If I have Twitter on my phone, it is endless scrolling. So I just don't, I just don't have it. Yeah. That's, you know, all you really need to know is that all these, like, these execs at Apple and, like, Facebook, they don't let their kids use it. They, like, limit their kids from using it. That's the only, that's yeah. the only thing you need to know. Honestly, Would you let your kid buy crypto? Why wouldn't 100%. you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what, though? There was like a, you know, it's not totally binary either. I mean, there was like, we let people smoke cigarettes, even though it's bad for them. But there, but like someone has stepped in and be like, yo, you like can't inject this shit right into people's veins. Like you need to put, you need to like put a filter on that, you know, like you Don't can't market use the kids. You can't yeah. use this chemical. You can't market it to kids. Honestly, we might just be living in the, the part of society before they introduce whatever that equivalent is for social media and phones and all this stuff. The like, TikTok ban bill is out today. As yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's Senator Josh Harley or something. Harley. So like we're, yeah. we're getting there, you know? Yeah. It, that, that used to feel like the cardinal rule of like America, like, you know, capitalism, do whatever you want, but like don't fuck with the kids. They're the future. And now it's like, okay, like we're finally getting there to the point where we've realized these things are semi-poisonous and, and we probably need to curtail them. So it, I think it's really good. Benioff called uh, Facebook the the new cigarettes like three or four years ago, and I actually remember listening to it at the time. And be like, "What are you talking about, dude?" And I'm like, "Yeah, he has his own reasons for saying that, but he's probably more right than wrong." I'd say most people can identify the point in their lives where they started using social media, and there's kind of like the before and after. That's probably not a good thing. I agree with that. I, oh, you know what else? Just last last uh, point on this topic. Have you guys ever heard of a movie called Eighth Grade? Mm-mm. Okay, watch Eighth Grade. Eighth Grade is Eighth Grade is it follows like an a girl who's in uh, Eighth Grade, basically, in like you know, and it's it's just dude, it's pretty depressing. Because do you remember being that old? Like you were super young in a middle school, and like I don't know what you guys did at that period of your lives. Like I played a lot of Xbox. I had no access to any of this stuff then, and watch her experience like it's bo burnham bo burnham did the movie if you guys know who mm. he is yeah. no my plan oh, was to become a professional skateboarder that's what i was aiming, oh, really? aiming for at that point yeah <laughs> didn't work but we found something else there's just two stories that i want to get to before uh before we jump so something happened earlier this week with stargate finance this is this is kind of funny but it's also indicative of a bigger problem so this was this got posted in their governance forum. The Stargate Foundation has been approached by an individual representing that he works with a family office that is looking to acquire $2 million of STG at market price from the Stargate DAO. As this is the first time this has happened, this issue is being brought forward to the Stargate DAO. Should the Stargate DAO complete this transaction, selling $2 million worth of STG, priced as a three-day time-weighted average price TWAP, uh, for USDC. This USDC would then be used to purchase ETH that is locked in the Stargate uh, POL, 
and supports target liquidity on Ethereum. Assuming a target APY of 5%, this would reduce STG emissions by 100,000 per year and strengthen Stargate's permanent liquidity. Blah, blah, blah. Basically, like, we just want to let the community know. You know, fast forward to two seconds later, you know, Stargate pumps from 47 cents straight up to 69 cents. That's really funny. Uh, and it's just, like, obviously, you know, everyone front ran this when, you know, you publish that there might be a huge OTC buy. So... One that's um, kind of funny. Unless unless it's PSYOPs and the family office already bought and then that was their way to pump it. It could be PSYOPs. Yeah. But how could they... Like, I don't know what the liquidity is in Sardate. I would guess it's super thin. So thin. I guess this would reflect poorly on Stargate or I guess fam- maybe the family office somehow sourced the liquidity outside of this or I don't, I don't know how they would have done that. But you're right. It could be PSYOPs. Probably not PSYOPs and probably they just got front ran and this is a good lesson in governance though. <laughs> Like, what's the, let me just ask you, because we've talked about this in the context of, like, not airing dirty laundry, necessarily. Like, sometimes you see these really personal, like, work feuds that get aired out in governance forums. What Mm -hmm. do you think is appropriate? You know, how much should be kept behind closed doors because it's frankly better for everyone involved versus what are things that should be run through governance? Most should be kept behind closed doors. I don't think that... Like the idea of a DAO needs to be like transparent everything and every decision goes through like public. Like I think there's this idea that DAOs have to have everything 100% transparent and DAOs have to have every decision made by committee. And I think both of those things are, uh, will be seen as like a remnant of like the early days of DAOs. You can't build good companies like that. I agree with that. I agree. Especially, especially HR issues and stuff. I mean, that's just, that doesn't serve anyone no. why would you want to know no. yeah but this does this is a good reminder too like also why there's why there's alpha and governance and it pays to pay attention to this stuff every now and again i think the most alpha and crypto is in governance right now yeah, yeah. there was there was something else it, it got, we didn't really want to talk about it on this but there was a curve pumped because basically avalanche or uh sorry ave was unwinding uh the impact of some bad debt that was in one of their their curve pools uh which is courtesy of avi eisenberg uh r.i.p um, and this also went through the governance forum and, and Curve also pumped because basically all they bought back a bunch of, uh, a bunch of Curve. So you can pay attention to this stuff and it, it actually is, it is very helpful. Uh, last thing I wanted to get your take on, cause I know you've got some, some thoughts on this is just, uh, is doodles moving over to moving over to flow. So the background is on Wednesday, they announced that, uh, doodles two, which was, premiered uh, back in June, is going to launch on Flow. Doodles 2 is to span millions of NFTs instead of the 10,000 avatars in the first Doodle series, which I actually think is is very interesting. Uh, core Doodles collections were made on Ethereum, uh, so that's not changing. This is just uh, Doodles 2. But you know, basically, the founder posted a thread of, for why they chose Flow, which has to do with kind of the, it's almost like the customer journey for signing up and, and be, you know, getting an NFT. Uh, so you can just create a wallet really easily in Gmail when you use Flow. You can buy wearables with your, your credit card in a couple of clicks, uh, no transaction fees. So there are some like legitimate reasons to to using Flow. What's what's your sort of thought on this decision from Doodles? Uh, it's a big risk that I disagree with, but I could be wrong. And I think it basically what they're doing is they're... Um, so you have the Doodle, you have Doodles Core, which is like the 10,000 Doodles. And those, I think my understanding is they're staying on Ethereum. And then there's like Doodles 2, which are which are going to be like millions of Doodles. And those are moving over to Flow or those will be built on Flow. Um, I think that they're basically jeopardizing their core audience for this like hypothetical and like potential massive TAM audience. And which is like normies, you know, who like use Flow because it's super easy to use and it doesn't feel like crypto. And like every time I've seen that strategy over the last four, five, six years, it's never worked. But I get how the decision was made, which is like today we're just this 10,000 PFP crypto thing. I, I think there's actually a broader problem here, which is like Doodles raised 54 million at or 50 million at $700 million valuation. The, they have to grow into this valuation, right? They if, if you raised it 700 million, they have to make a 10, if they want to get a 10 X, they have to become a $7 billion project. So, um, you don't do that by staying as a 10,000 PFP collection. That's like just held by crypto people. So like, this is them needing to take a swing because they raised so much money at, at such a high valuation. And like, 
I think that's why they're moving over to flow. But like, I don't know. Flow is um, flow like is the le- like I no I never hear about flow. Who uses flow? Like Top Shot is dead. They did a big thing with Dr. Seuss. I don't even think that got off the ground. Um, and like they created a they created a nice IP with like NBA Top Shots, but I haven't heard about that in like a year. And also they built a completely permissioned. It's not DeFi and it's not like a, a permissionless crypto platform. Like it's a completely walled off garden, which I think like, I don't know. I, I would assume what happened here is Flow went to Doodles and, and they, you know, most of the Doodles team came out of CryptoKitties and crypt, and most of the Flow team came out of CryptoKitties too. So what I would assume happened is like they're close friends. Flow went to Doodles and like, you know, I'm sure they gave them a decent chunk of change to go move on to Flow. And that, that's fine to happen. I, I just probably disagree with the decision. One thing I think is kind of interesting is the decision to launch millions. So I don't know if you ever uh, read or listened to any of the interviews by Gabe Layden, but he kind of has this idea that most people will get their first exposure to crypto through an NFT. And he has this whole thing about free to own. There'll be free NFTs and that'll make you sign up for a wallet and like that'll be the Trojan horse. I do think there's this weird thing that's happened with the initial punks collection uh, you know, kind of picked an arbitrary number of punks out of thin air when it was unclear that any real value would accrue there. And ever since, everyone's just copied this 10,000 number for for no real reason. And what that's given rise to is just these like whale community. It's just made NFTs like a whale game. And the whole NFTs, all you do is you find a mint that, you're early, that you can be early to, you mint the NFT, you either flip it or you hold on to it when you can become like a whale. And it means that there's like no sustainable revenue model for NFTs. And if you look at Yuga Labs, all they do is just find new ways to, there's like the secondary trading fees and then there's minting, you know, like new primary sales of NFT. They're just primary selling this, primary selling that. And uh, I think the way that you open up your your base to a broader number of people and therefore increase transaction revenue is to have larger collections of uh less expensive nfts so maybe doodles is doing that that would be cool but that but uh, i i don't know that that's their strategy so i'm with you it's kind of a feels a little bit weird to be honest yeah. this move yeah i don't know i'm i'm also like i i just don't know any who else is built on flow i don't know one other thing built on yeah. flow so no, me either. I, they yeah. got to. They got to open. I know they have plans to open up and become permissionless. But if they did, then I would be more excited about it and kind of change my mind. I've also. It's like liquidity rules everything, in rules everything in the NFT space. Um, and there's like there's no liquidity. There's six million dollars of like NFT volume on Flow in total. Like users don't want to store high value NFTs on Flow. So I think you'll see these like the the good doodles will stay on ETH and then the. The ba- you know, like the bad doodles go to flow. I don't know. It just doesn't feel like a good strategy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, all right, buddy. I think any other stories, anything else you want to catch up on? No, that's about it. It's funny that we Pour one out for Kevin the- Rose. He got hacked two million bucks. Pour that sucks. Out. Poor guy. Yeah. Honestly, big fan of that guy. And, you know, if he's not safe and he's getting hacked in this space, I'll be honest, it makes me feel a little bit nervous as well. One thing that everyone needs to do is just have two wallets. You have a wallet where you hold your valuable stuff and then a wallet that you use to interact with smart contracts. Like no ifs, ands, or buts. Everyone should have that. And he didn't have that. He had all of his NFTs in one wallet. Probably the reason you do that is like either laziness or like to flex, to show like I've got all these NFTs in this one public wallet. Like look at me. Um, and like this is what I think this is what happens when when that when when you have all when when you have all your stuff in like this one valuable wallet and you're interacting with smart contracts. So like what I do is I have a smart I have a wallet that like never touches anything, never touches smart contracts. And then if I want to like mint or I want to sell something or like interact with the smart contract, I move the asset over into that wallet. I know. I well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say I don't know if it's about maybe he's just very active. That's a huge pain in the ass what you're describing. That system is a gigantic pain in the ass. So, oh, I, I mean, I pour one out for him for sure. I feel really bad yeah. for him. I'm just saying, yeah. I don't think I, like the, yeah, I, yeah, I just wouldn't have all, I wouldn't have 2 million bucks in a wallet where you're interacting with smart contracts. And that's a, that's not on him. That's on, that's on the industry to like, I don't, I don't know. There's gotta be a better way to do this. I don't know the better way, but like, I feel like MetaMask could give a flag being like, this is a bad contract. I, I don't know. I don't know the solution. I don't know. But, no, yeah. I'm with, I'm with you there.
Yeah. All right, buddy. I think we can. Uh, I think we can close that. I, I love how you you missed the crypto stuff in the beginning and just came. I just came on to commentary. talk about social networks. Yeah, about social media. I. I. You know what? I've. I've drank the cool. I think it's after like a long time defending it and maybe trying to be too contrarian for my own good. I. I think they're. I think they're pretty bad. And I'm not. Me I'm too. Not good for, I'm going yeah. boomer on it. I agree. I'm going boomer too. All right, partner. Good chat. Peace, babe. Peace. Peace.